You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together. We turn this afternoon to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said to the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light is dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This afternoon we have come to the last Lord's Day of Heidelberg Catechism. I preach to you from the Word of God as the church summarizes and confesses this in Lord's Day 52. What is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is, in ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh do not cease to attack us. Wilt thou therefore uphold and strengthen us by the power of thy Holy Spirit, so that in this spiritual war we may not go down to defeat, but always firmly resist our enemies until we finally obtain the complete victory. How do you conclude your prayer? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is, all this we ask of thee, Because, as our King, having power over all things, thou art both willing and able to give us all that is good, and because not we, but thy holy name, should so receive all glory forever. What does the word amen or amen mean? Amen means it is true and certain, for God has much more certainly heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire this of Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we have together come to the last Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism, number 52. And that means that we have, in a sense, come to the end of another spiritual journey, or some might say another spiritual tour. 
And what is it that people often do when they come to the end of something? Well, often they'll tend to look back and they'll start reflecting and reminiscing. And maybe, and that's not a bad thing, you should consider that as well. As you reflect back over all of these Lord's Days that we have dealt with, is there something that stands out? Is there some Lord's Day, some point of doctrine or something in the commandments or in the Lord's Prayer that particularly speaks to you and has addressed you in your life and in your situation? Yet, of course, we not only reflect this afternoon, we also have one more thing to deal with. And I would say to you that most likely if you and I were composing this prayer, we would probably miss the boat on this, as we would probably miss the boat on all of these other petitions as well. If we were to write our own prayer, and sometimes we do compose our own prayers, hopefully often they are filled with all of our demands and expectations and hopes and dreams, and we have this large personal agenda, each one of us, and we would like God to step up to the plate and make it happen for each and every one of us. And so the result of our praying is often that the kind of things that should be in our prayers are not in them. Well, don't despair, because thankfully we have in the Lord Jesus Christ a great teacher, a glorious rabbi. And you'll notice that there is a sense in which he, in the Lord's Prayer, steps up to the plate and reminds us of what kind of things really, truly matter. And notice, first of all, there's things relating to God. And secondly, secondly, not primarily, there are things relating to us and our needs. And you know, over the past time, we have seen that our needs relate to bread or the physical side of life. Our needs also relate to forgiveness and the sins that we commit in this life. And now there's one more thing. One more thing that we often forget, and it has to do with temptation. The temptations that come to us every day in one form or another. And so I'd like to preach to you this afternoon the following theme, praying for God to deliver us today and tomorrow. And we're going to first of all look at our perilous situation, secondly at our precious resources, and finally at our priceless Victory. Well, beloved, what is this life that we are living and hopefully most of you are enjoying every day? Is it a life of constant stability, a life that rarely changes, a life on which you can predict things and expect things? Well, I think most of you would say that this life of ours tends to be rather up and down. Good days, bad things, nice things, ugly things, great people disappointing people. You see, things are always changing in our world. Our relationship changes, our work changes, our bodies, of course, change, our thoughts undergo some sort of change as well. And all of that happens. And not only does it happen, but also something else happens along with it, and that is the fact of temptation. We live in a world of change, 
And we live in a world full of all manner of temptations. And I think that's not too hard to explain. Uh, for example, you, you go to a party and you, after a while, begin to talk about other people and And that in itself may not necessarily be a bad thing, but you know as well as I that when you begin to talk about other people, it usually doesn't stop too easily. And it doesn't stop either with compliments and accolades, but often it gets nasty and downright ugly. You see, so often we are tempted by our speech and by our relationships to go in the direction of slander of gossip, of words that hurt instead of words that build up and promote. Another scenario has to do, for example, with the financial, the material side of life. We we spend a fair bit of time thinking about money, thinking about our businesses and our homes and the physical aspect or material side of life. The have-nots think about what they should have and do not have, and the haves often concentrate on what they do have and what they hope they never will have to lose. You see, it all underlines the fact that our world is not only a world of a lot of talk, but our world is also a world in which we gravitate almost naturally to the material and the monetary. And sometimes it gravitates so much that this becomes an all-consuming kind of passion. And if you hear some people talk, you would think that you can take your money and your houses and your cars and your RSPs and you can put them in a bag and you can take them into heaven with you. Instantly transferable. And so we fall, as it were, into the temptation of materialism. Of thinking that money is the be-all and the end-all of everything. Give me enough money and it'll equate to happiness. Silly idea. But that's the reality. Or one more scenario. It happens to be Friday or Saturday night and you decide, well, maybe we should rent a video. You trot to Rogers or Blockbuster or wherever you go for these kind of things and you find what you think is an appropriate video. You take it home, you put it in your machine, and before long, the first blasphemous word. I didn't hear that. The second blasphemous word. Well, maybe I didn't hear that either. The first murder. Well, that's not so bad, that's life. The second murder. What do you expect? Look at the kind of world we live in. The first sex scene, oh, my eyes didn't see that either. And so steadily we are drawn into a world that is filled with temptations, the temptations of sex and and of violence and of blasphemy. And so it goes. I'm sure all of you could sketch many more scenarios of of being tempted, tempted to do what what is wrong, tempted to do what ultimately undermines and destroys the warp and the woof of your daily life. The list is endless. And the agencies and the means that bring us temptation are endless as well. And so in light of that, in light of the fact, beloved, that you and I every day live, in a sense, a life that is under spiritual attack, we shouldn't be surprised that the Lord Jesus teaches this petition. 
Because more than anyone else, he knows the kind of enemies he faced. We read Matthew 4 together. No sooner is the Lord Jesus been baptized and right away, there's the devil. And there are his temptations. And they're not trite. They're not minor. They're major and invasive. And so the Lord Jesus comes to us in this sixth petition and he teaches us, people of God, you need to pray to your Father in heaven to deliver you and to keep you face or safe in the face of a life full of temptation. Of course, you may wonder, is that such a good idea? Is it really such a good idea to go to God the Father and ask Him to deliver you from temptation? After all, think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Who's the one who puts, as it were, the first big temptation in front of them? The Lord says to them, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, isn't that a temptation? Isn't that bound to generate in the heart of Adam and Eve an endless fascination and speculation about that one tree in this whole garden that is off limits? So isn't God involving himself here with temptation? What about Abraham? In some translations, Genesis 22, verse 1 reads, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. And he did so by ordering him to sacrifice his son Isaac, his only son on Mount Moriah. And what about David? We read in 1 Chronicles 21 that it was Satan who incited him to number the people and to take a census. However, we read in 2 Samuel 24 that it was really God who was doing the inciting and the tempting. And what about Job? And the fact that God permits the Satan to tempt him. Can we really say that God has nothing whatsoever with all of the terrible things that Job experiences in his life and in the life of his family? Now, of course, we realize, too, and that's the tricky part, the Scripture says God never tempts. James 1.13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. What are we supposed to do with that in light of Adam and Eve and Abraham and David and Job? Well, some scholars insist that the way out of this kind of dilemma is to realize that that word tempt can have two different meanings. Um, They stress that sometimes the word is used negatively in the sense of temptation or tempting. At other times, they say it's used positively in, in the sense of testing. And so the 
theological, the dogmatic, logical solution is the devil tempts, but God only tests. I'm not sure that that solves the problem. But anyway, that's the proposed, the popular proposed solution out of that dilemma. But you know, there is another way. There's another way of looking at all of these things related to temptation, and that is to ask yourself, what's the ultimate aim of the devil when it comes to temptation? Is it to entertain you? Is it to increase your self-confidence? Is it to secure your abundant future? Is it to promote your good and your blessing? Well, I'm sure we all recognize now what the devil plans for our lives is always negative. He's always Bad news. He's always bad company. He's always bad medicine. No good ever comes from consorting with the devil or those who are allied to him. But now on the other hand, think about God. However you might want to explain his relationship to testing or to tempting, there is no doubt whatsoever that when God puts his children to the test, the aim and the results and the end goal is always to build you up, to make you strong, to promote your spiritual well-being and to secure your eternal future. You know, James says it already in his opening chapter. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, James is saying the goal of God's testing is to make you complete. And that's not exactly what the devil has in mind for you. So the purpose of God, perhaps, putting you through the ringer, so to speak, is ultimately not to weaken you, but to strengthen you. Not to increase your spiritual flab, but to increase your spiritual muscle. Not to undermine your life, but to promote your life. And so you see, it's right to address God, to ask Him to deliver us from temptation because we know what His goal and intention is for our lives. And we know as well, beloved, that He alone has the ability to deal with our, our weaknesses and our enemies. You'll notice the Catechism mentions the the famous three enemies. The first is the devil. Well, we've already dealt with him in some sense. The devil, of course, is described by the Apostle Peter as a, a lion, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
The devil, in other words, is always looking for a new breakfast or lunch or supper. But you know, the devil, while he may have some power, doesn't have complete power. And so we should realize that while he is an enemy, while he is a very pervasive enemy, it's not as if he is the ultimate enemy. But yet at the same time, you need to kind of respect him, but yet not totally tremble before him either. And so we need to take a right measure of the devil and we need to realize he's out there. And he's active. And if there is a weak link in your armor, if there is some flaw in your personality, if there is something in your life that is not in harmony or in step with the will of God, you may be sure that the devil and those who are partnered with him will seek to exploit you and to bring you down. Don't think that you can live casually with your weaknesses, your flaws, or your sins. Because this life isn't neutral. And the devil is alive. Prowling, and that's a rather descriptive terminology, right? We all know what that's like. You, you see the neighborhood cats invade your backyard as they invade my backyard and they prowl around and that's looking for something to pounce on. And that's the devil. But then, of course, beloved, there's also not only the devil that speaks about here, it speaks about the world. And, of course, we need to understand that word world properly in its context. Sometimes it's it's positive. God so loved the world, John writes and quotes the Lord Jesus. In other words, the world is here, in that sense, the object of the love of God. But on the other hand, So often in Scripture as well, from the world, come all kinds of issues and philosophies and ideologies and trends and developments hostile to God and hostile to His children. Think of the Apostle John. Do not love the world. And that's the world in the negative. Or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't love world and God at the same time. Because this world is an enemy. And third, there is also the matter, of course, beloved, of our own flesh, the world, the devil, and our very own flesh. And maybe that's the most disconcerting enemy of all because when we think so often of enemies, we think of everything that's out there. You think of this book that should be burned or you think of this video or DVD that should be trashed or or you think of this person who should get his just desserts. But what we so often forget, and that's what the catechism does in all of its frankness according to the scriptures, is to remind us That our own flesh is the source of all kinds of corruption. In other words, the enemy is not only out there, he's also in here. And we need to recognize that. 
Don't fool yourself into thinking that my little heart is pure and perfect and it's all the other rotters out there in the world that are going to do me in. Because by that kind of statement, you've already shown that your heart is proud and arrogant. So don't underestimate your heart. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Or the Lord Jesus. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Jesus says all kinds of moral garbage comes out of our hearts. So you can say, beloved, the enemies that are arrayed against us, the enemies that are in us are formidable. They're powerful and potent. They're sly and they're sneaky. They're out there. And they're even in here. Maybe when you reflect upon that, you might want to give up. You might want to concede the battle. But then realize, too, that over against all of these enemies, and especially the three mentioned here by the Heidelberg Catechism, according to the Scriptures, against those three enemies, there are also three, as it were, counterweights. And what are the counterweights? Well, you can find them in that word of the doxology, the kingdom, the power, and the glory. To God belongs the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Now think about that in relation to our triune God. To who does the kingdom primarily belong? To God the Father. All of creation ultimately belongs to Him. You see that very clearly in the Bible for really what is the Bible all about The Bible is about the march of God the Father through history, one kingdom after another. The kingdom of David, the kingdom of Solomon, the kingdom in the days of Jesus Christ. And you know, all of those kingdoms are stepping stones to the one great final kingdom of God that is one day coming in all of its power and majesty. The kingdom of God belongs to the Father. And we are citizens of that kingdom. And then there is the matter of power. Who does power belong to? Well, if you look at the catechism's explanation, it gives you a hint. The power, the catechism says, actually belongs to the Holy Spirit. In other words, God the Father not only has a great and glorious plan, but he also has the means to bring it about. You know, the same power that Scripture says long ago shaped the heavens and the earth, the power that unleashes the wind and the rain, the power that changes human hearts and mind, the power that makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. That power 
is at work supporting the lives of God's people. That power just a few moments ago was promised to Samuel Thomas Vanderhorst. You know, you don't get baptized and then thrown to the world and to the devil and to your own flesh. No, God promises to be there for him. And for all of us as his people. He promises to be with us with his Holy Spirit. That's why the sixth petition reads, Will you therefore uphold and strengthen us by the power of the Holy Spirit so that in this spiritual war we may not go down to defeat? You see, the Holy Spirit has power, sustaining power, transforming power, and prevailing power. And he uses that power for the life and the benefit of the people of God. And of course, that leaves only one more thing, and that's the glory. And to whom belongs ultimately the glory? To none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. You know, when he was on earth, people caught glimpses of his glory. I'm sure some of the miracles that he did allowed people to see something of his glory. Some of the words and parables that he told did the same thing. But you know, by and large, his life on earth was a life of service, a life of humiliation and subjection and obedience. But that's not what it is now. We confess this moment that the Son of God is seated at the right hand of the Father and that he's ruling and reigning. And we believe that he's coming again with power and glory to judge the living and the dead. That one day everyone will see him and everyone will bow down before him. And for those who believe, it will be the glory of indication that they experience. But for those who reject him, it will be the glory of judgment. The latter will beg the mountains to hide them and fall upon them so they don't have to face the wrath of the Lamb of God. You see, beloved, the Son in His glory. That's our future. That's our hope, expectation. And so while it's true that we have a lot of enemies in this world, And while it's also true that there is this great battle going on, there is no doubt whatsoever that the outcome has already been foretold. The kingdom and the power and the glory belong to the triune God. The victory of God is already pronounced. The only thing left is for you and I to see it to experience it, and to get to enjoy it. And we will. Because you see, this prayer comes with a guarantee, and that's in the last word, the word, Amen. Or Amen, have your pick, doesn't much matter. We, of course, think that Amen simply means it's over, it's finished, it's done. 
The religious stuff relating to praying, preaching, and that kind of thing is over, and now we can get on to real living and real life. But, you know, that's not what amen means. Amen means victory. Actually, it's a shout of, of victory. It's, it's a cry of triumph. It's a bold word of conviction and of courage. It's a word of affirmation. Look, for example, at Revelation, the chapters 4 and 5. You see it very clearly. There you read about the four living creatures surrounding the throne of God. And those four living creatures, it says, never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And what do those four living creatures do as the Lamb takes the scroll with its seven seals? They sing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. But that's not all they sing. There's one more, one more thing. They shout, Amen. Four living creatures said, and that's what you read in Revelation 5.14, the four living creatures says, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You see, with their amen, they're saying, the Lamb who sits on the throne will really and truly triumph. And so, beloved, our deliverance from this world of temptation is drawing closer and closer and closer. You may look for it, pray for it, Prepare for it. For to our triune God really does belong the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.